If we haven't met, my name is Ryan. I just recently started serving here at Wyatt Park as the student minister, and I brought my sweet wife, Megan, along with me. If, if we can clap, we can clap. We should clap. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you open up with me to 1 John 4? Flip toward the back of your Bible, and you should find the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen. Your job, what I want you looking for as we read, is the way John describes, you're supposed to be looking at the way John describes how a right understanding of God's love for us leads to a self-sacrificial love that we have for others. Here we go. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. The word of the Lord says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together in a big room and uh, worship you through song. And I pray that, that you work through me. I'm nervous. I pray that you calm my nerves. I pray that you work through your word. And if anything I say, one word I say, 1% of this sermon is, uh, is good. We know that it's from you because I'm not qualified. I shouldn't be up here. And it's only through your work and my life. And, uh, and I thank you for that, God. Thank you for your son dying on a cross for our sin. And I pray that your spirit is working so evidently that we cannot help but see that today uh, through this message and in this room. We love you. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. When Megan and I first started dating, I can remember to, I remember back to how thrilling and enticing that initial feeling was. And maybe some helpful background information. For Megan and I, it was love at first sight. For me. <laughs> Not so much for her. She kind of maybe chased a little bit and really proved to her that I was serious. And yeah, she kept that up for a couple months before I finally wore down. And in a weird turn of events, she actually asked me out. Well, I definitely didn't plan it out that way in my head. Of course I said yes. And in that moment, I was the king of the world. Nothing could get in my way. I wanted to run through a brick wall. Now, I think most people in this room know that feeling. Maybe not the brick wall part, but at least that new relationship feel. And for me, it felt like I was walking on air the next few weeks. Everyone became my best friend. I'm going to Panera. I'm looking the 30-year-old male behind the counter in the eye and saying stuff like, you know what, man? That's a good-looking mustache. I'm going through the drive-thru, and I'm paying it forward for the next person. Sometimes. I'm looking through social media at the same posts from people that used to make me so jealous, and suddenly, I'm happy for them. 
and I'm not jealous anymore. You know why? Because I've got a new girlfriend, and nothing can bring me down. And you bet, any chance I get, I'm telling anybody that'll listen how great my girlfriend is. And I start with that, because I think that paints a picture for how Jesus expects his followers to love others. Because church, if you love God the way you say you love God, then you can't help but serve others. And you can't help but love people the way that God loves you. Jeff told me about this opportunity to preach a couple months back, and I've really kind of wrestled with the idea of, what do I preach? What is it that White Park needs to hear from God's word? Because I kind of have a pretty cool opportunity to preach on what would end up being today, December 31st, one day before a new week, one day before a new month, and one day before a brand new year. So what do I talk about? What can I possibly convey to you through a tiny little microphone strapped to my face that would stick with you for as long as possible? It's God's love. If you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, you believe that Jesus died for your sin, you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, then I want you to make the next 30 minutes an opportunity for you to step back, examine the last year or even the last week of your life. And I want you to ask yourself if the love that you have for others, not just within this church, or even other believers, but think about the love or lack of love that you show to complete strangers. I want you, as we examine these next several verses, to ask yourself if the way that you interact with others would be characterized by John's description of love that we just read about. And if you're new to the church scene, not sure what you believe about God, lean in. Because John is going to lay out God's love for you pretty clearly. So if you are ever confused about what it is that Christians believe, if you ever got mixed messages from people that claim to be Christians, John's about to clear that up for us. I've got three points today. We're going to pull them from the text. Point number one, loving God means loving others. Point number two, Jesus models our love for others. And point number three, we can be certain in God's love. A few quick things about the epistle or letter of First John is it's made up of just five chapters. And most scholars believe that while it lacked the stylistic features of a letter, basically meaning there was no formal greeting or closing, they still believe that it was written to a specific church to address a specific situation. So this letter was essentially written, a written sermon dealing with the problem in the church. What's the problem? Well, some teachers had risen up in this church that taught a different understanding of Christianity than John and the other apostles. And if you look back at 1 John 2.19, you see that these false teachers have probably already left the church and started their own, but it seems like they were still in contact with some of the original church. So what that means for us is we need to remember that when John is writing these verses we're gonna read about Jesus and God's love, it's not just encouragement. It's a defense against a teaching that has made its way into the church. And I feel like 21st century Christianity has maybe experienced a little bit of that today. Because I think an idea that has kind of subtly made its way into the church is what's known as nominal Christianity. Just going through the motions. Sure, I go to church on Sunday. It's what I do. It's what I've always done. But why does that have to affect my personal life, my private life? You've heard this before. We've reduced Christianity down to a building we attend for an hour once a week. It doesn't impact what I do on Friday nights. It doesn't change what I'm looking up online. 
And it definitely doesn't affect the way that I interact with my coworkers, my classmates, my spouse, or anybody else. But I'm still Christian. Yep. If you don't believe me, check the Bible verse in my Instagram bio. And I get so passionate about that because that's my story. That was me. I was 16, 17, 18 years old, living a life categorized by sin. I was doing anything I could to make myself popular. I didn't care if that meant hurting other people. All I cared about was doing what was best for me, doing what felt right. And the whole time, I thought I was a Christian. You know why? Because I went to church. I was in the Christian clubs, and I even went to church camp a few times. And I'm not saying that was someone's fault. No. It wasn't like that's what people were teaching. But that's what I saw. So that's what I did. And I've talked to too many people, too many students, too many young adults, too many people older than me that call themselves a Christian but have absolutely no intention of living like one. And what John's going to tell us is that a true Christian isn't that. So let's look at the text, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. It seems really fitting that John, when appealing to love, would address his readers as dear friends, which literally translates to beloved. So what John is saying here is, hey, you guys are my friends. Remember I was in your brother's wedding and you were just at my daughter's birthday party? He does this a lot throughout the letter. Chapter 2, verse 7, dear friends. Verse 12, dear friends. Chapter 3, verse 21, dear friends. Chapter 4, verse 1, dear friends. So there's a familial tone throughout this entire letter. And he gives the command to love one another. But he's not just saying, hey, you guys need to love one another. He uses the word us. He says, we need to love one another. He knows he's not above his own teaching, but why? What is the point in loving? Because love comes from God. If you love, you've been born of God, meaning you have a relationship with the true and living God. The question you should now be asking is, wait, does that mean that people that don't claim to be a Christian but still show love by serving at the food kitchen and stuff like that are saved? That's a valid question. And if you were to isolate this text and not read anything else, you're probably going to think that. But if you look back just one chapter, in 1 John 3, 23, you see John's a little more specific. He says, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So his audience is clear. You are not saved by loving alone. You're saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And as a result, if you are genuinely in Christ, the natural outworking of that is loving others. That's where I pulled point number one from, verse seven and eight. Loving God means loving others. Loving God means loving others. When I was in high school, I worked at a grocery store in Savannah called Brothers Market as a cashier, mainly weekends, mostly afternoons and evenings, you know, just kind of living it up. One of the nightly jobs was to clean the floors with something very creatively named the floor machine. Kind of looked like a mini Zamboni. And you didn't just start working there and get to run the floor machine. You had to earn it. And I can't tell you why, but this was kind of a coveted role at Brothers Market. 
So I work my way up the chain. I earn it. I'm running the floor machine, and I'm a natural. And I wasn't the only person that thought that either. In fact, one night, we had a guy from an outside company come in, replace the tile. He saw me run the floor machine, and he said something along the lines of, you got real talent, kid. <laughs> to which I say, yeah, it's really nothing. And then he offers me a job, which, I don't know, I thought that was kind of crazy because, you know, I'm already working. But he says, listen, I'm a janitor at the Maryville Hy-Vee. I go from midnight to 4 a.m. to scrub and buff the floor. I need somebody on the weekends, and it'll pay 100 bucks a night. I felt like I just got called up to the big leagues. Naturally, I accepted, and now I'm driving to Maryville at midnight to scrub the floors at Hy-Vee. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this story because as I think back to that job, or really any job for that matter, what do you do as a result of getting that job? I'll tell you what I did. I scrubbed and buffed the floors of the Maryville Hy-Vee from midnight to 4 a.m. for about a month until I quit because that's when I realized why they paid $25 an hour to work the graveyard shift. Regardless, the point remains. You go to work because you have a job. You don't go somewhere, start working, and then get the job. And in the same way, because you are loved by God, you love others. As a result, you don't love others in order to be loved by God. Key distinction right there, because you are loved by God, not in order to be loved. Like I said, I quit that job as a janitor about a month in. Why? Because I didn't know what I was signing up for. This is what John is making really clear to us. He's saying, when you become a Christian, when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, get ready for a life of loving people. And if you call yourself a Christian and your life is not categorized by love, that should raise some serious red flags. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine yourself. Why? To see whether you are in the faith. Remember when I said at the beginning to take the next 30 minutes to examine 2023, the type of love that you had shown in the last year, the type of person that you were in the last 12 months? That's the application. Thinking about the actions you took toward people you loved and also complete strangers. Could you honestly say they were loving? If you're not sure, ask someone. Ask your spouse or your best friend if they'll give you an honest and biblical assessment of the type of love you show to others. And for others of you, you know. You know you're not loving others. But there's good news. Because tomorrow is January 1st. A new beginning, a new opportunity for you to love others with a biblical kind of love. And John's going to go on to teach us what that kind of love looks like. Let's jump back in the text, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. You ready? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is it. This is what the entire Christian faith stands on. So if you were ever confused about Christianity and what it is we believe, it's this. It's Jesus, and specifically, it's Jesus coming to the earth, living a perfect life, and yet dying on a cross. The 10-cent seminary word is substitutionary atonement. Substitute, meaning in place of. Atonement, meaning payment for doing wrong. So God sent his son to live among us a couple thousand years ago 
Like that's documented. There's not a credible atheist that would claim Jesus wasn't a real historical figure. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, in book 18 of his work Antiquities, said that Jesus was condemned to die on a cross by a governor named Pontius Pilate. Josephus is Jewish, not a Christian. He doesn't have a dog in the fight, and yet that's what he wrote. Verse 11. Dear friends, there it is again. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Okay. What John is doing here is contrasting God the Father's invisible qualities to the incarnate Son, a.k.a. Jesus, and his fleshly body. No doubt with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18 in mind. So if you're ever confused, look up John 1, 18. And really, he says this to set up a point he makes later in verse 20. But he continues. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So that command to love is back again. This time it's with the opportunity to complete God's love. How do we do that? By loving self-sacrificially. Meaning, we are to love others at the expense of our comforts, our time, our money, and our very selves. Self-sacrificially, loving others at the expense of our comfort, our time, our money, and our very selves. Jesus says in John 15, 13, that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And that's how we get to point two. Jesus models our love for others. Point number two, Jesus models our love for others. Megan and I got a pet fish recently. Well, it didn't really start that way. We bought an $8 beta fish from the store last week for a white elephant gift exchange we were doing with the young adults. I know, it's a pretty great idea. What I didn't expect was Megan to become attached to this thing before we'd even left the store. So much so that she named it before we had even got home. So now we're bringing Joseph to church and wrapping him up for the white elephant gift exchange. And who do you guys think ended up with Joseph at the end of the game? Megan. So now we've got a fish, but there's a problem. We don't have a fish tank. So I say, hey, we gotta return Joseph because I don't wanna buy a tank. To which Megan says, if we buy a tank, that can be the rest of my Christmas gift from you. Okay, I guess we have a deal. We buy the tank, the food, the special water, and some cool toys for him. And we get it set up in our spare bedroom. And you wouldn't believe the amount of times Megan goes in there to check on Joseph. He's a fish. What's he gonna do? And yeah, I'll admit, this is a really silly example. But I'm telling you, Megan loves our pet fish self-sacrificially. She gave up the rest of her Christmas gift in order to keep him. And I don't know if you guys have ever had a pet fish, but they don't really do much. It's not a dog. They can't show you any kind of affection. All they really do is swim. And truly, that's kind of like God's love for us. We really don't bring anything to the table except for our sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says, 
our righteous acts, the good stuff we do, the things we, ma- we think makes us a good person are like filthy rags compared to a perfect and holy God. And yet he loves us anyway, even though you can do absolutely nothing to earn God's favor. He loves us anyways. God still sent his son down to the earth to die an atoning sacrifice, to give his life for his friends, for those he loves. And he loves you. A proper kind of understanding, a correct understanding of that sacrificial love God has for you will inspire you to love others self-sacrificially. Meaning, if you claim to be a Christian, yet do not love others, you do not have a right understanding of the gospel, of what Jesus did for you. So how do we love people that way? First, Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. If you are trying to love people on your own, you're not going to get very far. It's hard. You're going to get discouraged, and you're going to give up. You have to be in community. And Sunday morning is great, but it can't stop here. You have to be meeting with a small group of believers so that they can personally encourage you and spur you on to love others. We have ways for you to do that. We have programs in place for this reason. If you haven't noticed, this is a big church. We've got lots of rooms, and we want you in one. We've got Sunday school classes meeting every week before service. If you're a student, middle or high schooler, we lead a group that meets on Wednesday nights, and we'd love to have you. If you're a young adult, 18 through 29-ish, we've got a group for you that just started meeting. We call it The Fold, and we meet here on Tuesdays from 7 to 9. I promise, I'm not just plugging these ministries. This isn't just preacher talk. I believe from somewhere deep in my heart and soul that this stuff works. God was serious when he said, don't stop meeting together. If you're thinking, this is my year, 2024, baby. This is the year I get serious about God. You're not going to get far on your own. You know why I know that? Because that's what you said last year and the year before. So if you're not going to change your actions, how do you expect your situation to? And I tell you what, when you go for that first time, you build up the confidence. It finally works with your schedule. It's going to be awkward. And that's okay. And actually, that should encourage you. Because as you keep coming back and developing relationships, it's going to become obvious that the only thing you have in common with some of these people is Jesus. And yet you've become friends. Because a shared hope with someone that when you both die, you get to be in heaven forever and ever and ever is so much greater than any hobby or sports team that you could ever have in common. Anybody ever been to Pastor Jeff's office? What's in there? Deer mounts, beaver mounts, and bear mounts, right? You know what I don't have in my office? Dead animals hanging on the wall, staring at me with their weird, sad, cold eyes. (laughs) Jeff and I really don't have a lot in common. I like to golf. He likes to wrestle. I like volleyball. He likes to hunt. I like my incense burner. He likes to make fun of my incense burner. (laughs) But we do have a shared belief in Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. 
He goes from a guy I would look at weird because he's probably wearing his waders in the grocery store <laughs> to one of my biggest spiritual role models in my life. And I'm telling you, that would not happen were it not for this one shared belief in this guy that lived 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, and saved both of us from our sin. So please, whatever you do, however you do it, don't try to do it alone. Join a group, be in community, and let them encourage you to love when you don't feel like loving. Next, you need to be seeking out ways that you can serve others. This is a conscious daily decision. Galatians 5.13 says, because you are free in Christ, don't indulge in the sinful nature. Instead, serve one another in love. So this means more than just getting rid of those vices that you carry around. It means seeking ways to serve others in this church and in the world. There's a famous saying, it's idle hands are the devil's workshop. You know that's true. And that's what this verse is getting at, I think. You know when you're most tempted to sin? When you're alone, with nothing better to do than to sit in your bed and look up something that makes you clear your history before moving on. And when you're bored all day, so you just decide to binge watch a whole season of that new show on Netflix? Or when you're on break at work, you've got time, so you go to that person's Facebook page that you know makes you jealous, and you start to wish you just had as good a Christmas as they did. See, all these things happen when you're by yourself, and you've got nothing better to do. What Paul is telling us in Galatians 5.13 is, if you are seeking ways to serve others, you don't even have the time to think about sinning. And we've got plenty of ways for you to serve others, both on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. We've got dozens of kids right now being taught Bible in our kids' ministry by faithful men and women who do that week in and week out. We've got our youth on Wednesdays, our young adults on Tuesdays, and did you guys know we have a prison ministry? <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I'm telling you, if you want to serve, we've got ways for you to serve. But you got to take initiative, and it's not just in this church. You got to be looking for ways to serve your spouse, your kids, your parents, your roommates, your teachers, and people in every area of your life. That's how you resist sin, and that's how you love others self-sacrificially. And then lastly, Jesus says in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a tough one. This is the one I didn't want to say because I don't want to do it. I'll just tell you, it doesn't feel good to get made fun of at work or betrayed by a friend and love them anyways. But that's what we're called to. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 says, if your enemy is hungry, give them food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. I used to serve at Cheddar's, and I would always say as a server, you encounter every type of person. Occasionally, you'd get a customer who just enjoys berating the server. It didn't matter how well you did your job. Nothing was right, and they let you know. And you know what I learned after serving these kinds of people is, they hate it when you don't retaliate. They hate when you treat them with respect instead of rivaling their anger with your own. And I think that's what the proverb is talking about. So even when they leave the restaurant and the tip is at zero and you've got a big mess to clean up on the table, you know that they know that there's something different about you. 
That's what John is saying here, is that you need to love your enemy so well that they are forced to ask, what is so different about you? And then, that's when it's your time to shine. That's when it's all worth it because you get to share about how your God saved you from sin so that you get to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and how he can do the same thing for you. And that, I think, is how God's love is made complete. Let's look back at the text. Verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. In all honesty, I probably could have just preached through verse 12 and saved this passage for another time. Actually, that's what most of the commentaries I read did. Because John is kind of switching gears here. And up to this point in the sermon, we've been specifically talking about love. But John shifts. Now he starts talking about assurance of salvation. Did you catch that? He says, this is how we know that we live in him. This is how we know. Not this is how we think we might be or we're pretty sure we are. But this is how we know that we have a relationship with the God that created the universe. I like to ask two questions. I ask these questions quite a bit and I didn't come up with them. So you might have heard them before. But if you've never heard or if you've forgotten your answer, I would encourage you to answer them now. Just in your head. Two simple questions. First one being, Question number one, how confident are you on a scale from one to 10, one being not so sure, 10 being certain, that if you died today, right now, that you would go to heaven? Died today, how sure are you, one to 10, that you would go to heaven? Got it? Got your answer. Second question, same thing, you die today, you stand before God, he asks you, why should I let you in? What do you say? God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to tell them? I remember being asked those two questions for the first time. I think I said a seven. I mean, I was pretty sure, but, you know, I didn't want to sound cocky or anything. I answered the second question with, I don't know. I mean, I've tried to do the right thing. I've gone to church. I read my Bible. And, like, You know, I really try not to sin. If you answered anything less than a 10, that's the wrong answer. And I know it sounds conceited until you hear the second answer. God asks you, why should I let you in? The only correct answer is because Jesus died on the cross for my sin. You see, I did nothing to deserve it. All I have to do is point to the guy that did. And John says, because we believe that, because we believe the gospel, he gives us his spirit and we can know that we have eternal life. Let's keep reading. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If you know the way to have eternal life, a pretty good sign that you actually believe it It's to tell people. Tell people how they can too. And you're gonna sound crazy. You're gonna get some weird looks from people. And it is crazy. We believe in an invisible God that wrote us a book that talks about how we can inherit a kingdom after we die and live forever in a world that we can't see. That's crazy. 
unless it's true. Let's finish up, verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Point number three, we can be certain in God's love. Point number three, we can be certain in God's love. One of my favorite pastors is a guy named Jonathan Pecluda. He pastors a church down in Texas, and he uses an analogy about this that I really like. Something like, if I were to give you tickets to the Chiefs and Bengals game at 325 today, I'm talking front row seats, right behind the Chiefs bench, you get to watch Travis Kelsey slam his helmet right into the ground for a second straight week. But this time, you're seeing it from 20 feet away. You'd be thrilled, right? And you'd probably be checking your watch, hoping the sermon would get done sooner. But you'd go. You'd get to Arrowhead. You'd park in a spot, walk a quarter mile to the stadium, and then stand in line. And when you finally get to the front, you get asked by the guy working, why should I let you in? To which you respond, because I've got tickets. And he says, who gave you these? You say, my friend Ryan from church. And he says, okay. And then you go on your way and you watch the game. In that moment, when the guy asks you, why should he let you into the stadium? You can have complete certainty. You know why? Because you've got the tickets. And it doesn't matter that you didn't buy them yourself. What matters is you've got the tickets. In the same way, we can be absolutely certain that we can go to heaven when we die because Jesus gives us a righteousness that is not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, we have been bought at a price, and that price was Jesus. His life on a cross, dying a death he did not deserve because he loves us. But good news, that's not the end of the story, because three days later, he rose from the dead. The tomb was empty, and now every year we celebrate Easter. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That new life is characterized by love. Love for God, God's love for you, and your love for others. So yeah, we can be certain about God's love because that really happened. Jesus really did die. The tomb really was empty. And God's spirit really lives in you if you believe that. And what John is saying is, if God's spirit really does live in you, you're gonna love others. That's the application. If you were anything less than a 10 on that scale from earlier, you can leave those doors with a 100% certainty that you are going to heaven when you die. But just know, when you leave, you're signing up for a life of self-sacrificial love. In summary, loving God means loving others. Jesus models our love for others. And we can be certain in God's love. Back to my story from earlier, when I first started dating Megan, it was electric. Those first few weeks and months were, I guess, what you would call puppy love. <laughs> but just like any good feeling, it didn't last forever. We got in arguments, and that initial feeling seemed to evaporate right before me. So what did I do? Did I leave? Did I search for it somewhere else? Did I get frustrated with my situation? 
because that feeling wasn't there anymore? I'll be honest. In high school, that's what I would have done. That's what I did. I would have trusted my heart, gone my own way, found a new feeling, and in three months, when that feeling too would fade away, I'd rinse and repeat. Same cycle over and over, again and again. But thankfully, by the time I started dating Megan, I knew that wasn't going to work. I knew I couldn't always trust my feelings. I knew Jeremiah 17, 9 said, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? So this time was different. This time I didn't base my response off of my feelings alone. And it turns out God was right. What I'm saying is, if you've been a Christian for long, or if you just accepted Christ 10 minutes ago, that initial feeling is going to fade. Some days you're going to wake up and not feel like fighting sin and loving others. And John is telling us here not to base your love for others on your feelings alone. No. Our love for others is based on the truth. The truth that God loves you enough to self-sacrificially send his son to die for you. If you're wrestling with that today, wondering how do I love this specific person in my life, let's talk after. You don't have to talk to me. You can talk with Pastor Jeff. He'll be down here. And if you're still not convinced that you can be a 10, you can be 100% confident that when you die, you get to go to heaven, we'll be right here. Come talk to us. Because this church would be doing you a disservice if we let you walk into 2024 not sure if you're a Christian. This is the year Wyatt Park Baptist loves people so radically through our time, our finances, our comforts, that people can't help but ask why. And then we get to point them to Jesus. That's a conscious decision you have to make through the power of the Spirit to love self-sacrificially one day at a time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you're a good and loving God, and we just learned that. I think I said love 500 times throughout this sermon. Because you are love. That's what you say. God is love. And so I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't quite understand, doesn't quite grasp God's love for them, that that would change. That you would supernaturally work somehow, some way in their hearts take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh so that they can understand, comprehend your self-sacrificial love for them on the cross. That way when they die, they can be 100% certain. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that if anything I said today is true, that it sticks in the hearts and the minds of people throughout this week and maybe throughout this year. And God, anything I said that that wasn't uh, coherent with your word, didn't align with your word. I pray that that's already forgotten, that it's gone. I know that anything good has to come from you. God, I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this church. And uh, I pray that now as we worship you in song, that people would have confidence leaving this room, walking into the world, knowing that they are loved by a perfect and holy God and that they can love others with that kind of love, because you have come to live inside of us. God, we love you. We praise you. We worship you now through song. It's in your name we pray. Amen.